This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Welcome to our Arab Talk listeners again from our COVID-19 shelter-in-place quarantine studio here in Northern California. Jamal and I continue to produce and, and get our Arab Talk show out every week, uh, standing very, very carefully and closely to the shelter-in-place uh, restrictions that we continue to be under. And since our last show, Jamal, the worldwide uh, count on total number of uh, people in the world who have contracted the COVID-19 virus is 2.6, almost 2.7 million people. And unfortunately, the worldwide death toll is over 187,000. In the United States, we continue to have a rapidly expanding, uh, you know, kind of a pandemic here in the United States. As of this morning, 802,000 cases of COVID-19 in the United States, close to 45,000 deaths. And as I'll talk about in, in a minute, looking at the Stanford study that came out this week and some new data that are coming in, there's a very, very good chance that these numbers significantly underrepresent and underestimate the totality of the COVID-19 virus that has been exposed in the United States. There's a couple of breaking pieces of information, Jamal, that I think is really important for our listeners. One big piece of information, and it's right out of Northern California, was determined that the first two known cases of uh, COVID-19 exposure came from Santa Clara County. There were two deaths. Uh, one was as early as February 6th, and the other one was a week later. And that's a substantial period of time, weeks earlier where people were exposed and dying from COVID than anybody knew in the United States. What that means, though, for us and for the United States, Jamal, is that if there were COVID exposures and deaths as early as uh, the first week in February, that means the COVID-19 virus has been in the community and there has been community spread probably as far back as December 2019. And the CDC and local uh local uh, public health authorities here in Northern California are asking coroners to go back to see if they can type and find out on some of the autopsies that were done here in Northern California to find out if some of these unexplained deaths that occurred as early as December, January, and February, Jamal, uh, were actually as a result of COVID. If that's true, the numbers that I spoke about before 800,000 total cases, 45,000 deaths in the United States is significantly underestimated. And if you look at the Stanford study that came out this week, Jamal, they estimate that the exposure to COVID in the Bay Area, at least, is close mm -hmm. to five to 10 times greater than, than the numbers that are being reported. And it, it's suggesting that the uh, virus exposure both in the Bay Area, in California, and nationally, is substantially worse than what we've been thinking. Yet, uh, Jess, uh, there are people in your home state demonstrating in the streets, 
uh, want to go back to work. Uh, they don't want to obey the orders. They feel that their constitutional rights uh, are being stripped. And there are talks about, uh, you know, states giving giving the green light to some states to uh, start bringing the workforce. And last, uh, I'm throwing all this at you. And last night I watched this crazy interview uh, on CNN with the mayor of Las Vegas it was who, crazy. Wants, to who it was wants crazy who to open up Las Vegas what's your take on this well there are a lot of things that i find disturbing about what happened in this last week jamal um at the top of the list uh and they're very close to each other are americans protesting uh and actually putting up signs that the covid pandemic is either a hoax or nothing to worry about and that they want to go back to work. Now, I have, you know, complete understanding. I mean, this this virus has decimated uh, people's lives. People, you know, 26 million Americans have applied for unemployment. People's lives are being destroyed by not being able to work. But for people to protest, to return to work, to deny reality, to deny science, which is what many of these protesters are doing, is putting themselves and the rest of us at grave risk for a pandemic that could, in fact, reach levels far worse than what we're seeing now. In fact, one of the heads of the one of the uh, scientists at the CDC this week, Jamal, said that in thinking about what's going to happen in the fall when the flu hits and the second wave of the virus of the COVID-19 hits in the fall, there's a chance that the situation in the fall and going into the winter months with the influenza season, it could be much more catastrophic and damaging even than what we're having now. So that's it could be damaging even if we continue with the shelter in place. So for people to deny science... For people to be so politically or unscientifically motivated that they would actually put themselves, their families, and the rest of us at risk is truly, truly uh, remarkable. And, you know, I don't don't necessarily want to racialize this, but Jamal, when, when I looked at those protests in Michigan and in many other states, I didn't see a lot of people of color. People of color are not protesting. People of color are, in fact, sheltering in place, listening to science, going along with what local leaders are saying. And if you look at the people who are protesting, you know, they look like your typical Trump supporter. They are not always wearing uh, protection, you know, in terms of masks. And they're certainly not going along with social distancing. They're putting themselves in danger they're going to actually create the conditions to make this epidemic and the economic devastation that goes with it, Jamal, 10 times worse than what we have right now. And by, mean, the way, we, we, and by the way, just to answer your question, the mayor of Las Vegas, I have to say, is close to delusional. She wants casinos to open up. And when Anderson Cooper asked her, well, how are you going to do social distancing in a casino or in a nail salon, or in a tattoo parlor, or in a massage, you know, parlor. She said, "I don't know. Let let other people figure it out." 
That's also the mayor, the the governor of Georgia, Jamal said, you know, uh, bowling alleys are essential businesses. And mm. it's it's mind boggling to see politicians who are not scientists, who are not doctors, say absolutely crazy things that are putting the people of their states, the people of their cities, the entire country at risk. I, I don't want to be... I mean, each each week, Jamal, I, I keep giving more and more bad news. But if you look at the projections and the modeling that, that is done now, this COVID epidemic is nowhere near ever coming to a point where we can go back to life as normal. Uh, some people are saying in some of the modeling, not until well into 2021. We're talking about six, seven, eight months of some kind of sheltering in place, quarantining, social distancing going on, Jamal, that could change our lives as far as we know it. And I have actually to give some respect to the governor of Nevada, who actually said the same thing, like, that's crazy. He's not going to listen to the mayor. And and his advice uh, was for everyone to shelter in place and and maybe quickly in about uh, 30 seconds just we don't we no longer hear about the miracle drug yeah let me uh, tell that, you about that, that that trump that trump has been uh, well, marketing i want to say two things about that jamal that's a really really good point a study came out of using hydroxychloroquine and zithromax with va patients they decided mm. to try this with va patients and what the data uh, reported and suggested is that if you took chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, the magic cure that do Dr. Donald Trump suggested, you were more likely to die. So not only did it not help you, but if you took it, you were more likely to die taking Donald Trump's treatment. So mm -hmm. let and 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 the person at the CDC, Jamal, and this is going to be a big story, who was heading the Department for Developing Vaccines was let go by the Trump administration because he had the audacity to say, I don't want to say this about hydroxychloroquine or about any treatment until we have the scientific basis for it. When he made mm -hmm. that statement, he was summarily fired. I mean, he's suing them now, but um, I do think that you know, this is why we have to believe in science. This is why science is so important. This is why we, we cannot rush out and say, you know, what what do you have to lose? Just try it. Well, what do you have to lose is that it looks like if you took Trump's magic drug, the Pence magic drug, that you were more likely to die. So that's why seeing these protesters and seeing their denial of science and seeing what they're doing is, is so... Um, unbelievable to me because again they're putting everybody at risk i mean this is gonna i mean one one really quick thing jamal i mean people are talking because you mentioned this getting the vaccine you know people developing antibodies just because you have an antibody doesn't mean it's going to protect you from getting reinfected the new data are coming out saying that people who got infected didn't get sick got the antibodies are now getting reinfected again so this coronavirus looks like it's has something about it that is really different than anything we've ever seen before. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO 
San Francisco 89.5 FM. And just at the top of the hour, we forgot to wish uh, Muslims across the globe uh, Ramadan Mubarak. Uh, as you know, Ramadan starts uh, on Friday for uh, billion and a half Muslims across the globe, basically. And so we want to wish everyone who is watching uh, us or, or listening to us uh, Ramadan Mubarak. And then the uh, other thing is... No, Ramadan Karim, Ramadan Mubarak. And here's the thing, Jamal, for Muslims all over the world. You're not going to be able to go to the masjid. You're not going to be able to do tarawih in the masjid, so what, in the mosque. So what you're all going to have to do is get on Zoom and do it Well, do it on this... On that thought, we uh, earlier in the day, we had uh, this interview with uh, Zahra Billo, the executive director of yeah. the Council on American Islamic Relations, uh, uh, the Bay Area, in the Bay Area, which is the one of the oldest and largest chapters uh, in the United States. And this is what uh, Zahra Billo had to say. Joining us on Arab Talk with Jessen Jamal from her shelter in place, Zahra Billo, the executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, San Francisco Bay Area office. This is the oldest and one of the largest care chapter offices. Welcome to Arab Talk, Zahra. I hope that you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy during these rough times. Thank you so much for having me, Jamal. Um, we're trying. Yes, yes. As you know, uh, Ramadan will begin this week, uh, probably this Thursday, subject to the sighting of the moon. Muslims are preparing for the holy month in extraordinary uh, circumstances. This year, Ramadan will uh, coincide with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which has left millions infected globally and tens of thousands uh, of people dead. This will likely have an impact on communal activities such as family iftars and communal uh, player, uh, prayers uh, such as Salat Tarawih. How will the Muslim community in the United States be coping with this? Oh, Jamal, that's such a big question at a, at a challenging time. Um, Ramadan, you know, as many of your listeners know and, and so many of our friends and allies know is uh, a month of worship, uh, a month of gratitude and um, training, but also, as you say, a, a month of community. We we start our fast together. We end our fast together. We pray. Um, you know, people people get together communally and religiously. And I think that for most people alive today, they may not have experienced something like this unless you know they they live in very small communities or they are newer to the faith and you know and don't have loved ones who who are Muslim. And so it will be challenging. Um, most mosques, all mosques actually, are are closed for all congregational prayers. Um, the gates are closed. And there's been a lot of urging from religious leaders to, to be patient during this time. For I was just talking to my family members who said, you know, mm -hmm. for over 35 years, I've gone to the mosque every day in Ramadan. And so we're saying to them, and religious leaders are saying to them, that now this year's act of worship is to stay home. Right. Is that that is in and of itself an act of devotion, because in Islam, life is of highest value. Right. Even over ritual and, and community, which are so important. And so I need to do what I can to stay home. And so though mosques are closed, that said, 
Um, you know, everyone is all over Zoom these days, right? Zoom, WhatsApp, Hangouts, Bluetooth, mm-hmm. all of the platforms. And so many, many mosques are moving, at least some of their programming online. And then what's been really inspiring, Jamal, of course, is we know so many people who have lost their jobs, right, who are sick and struggling or otherwise facing hardship right now. So we've seen a number of mosques, particularly in this region, step up and say, if you lost your job, if you need food, if you need groceries, please let us know. And so I'm hopeful that though Ramadan will look very different, um, we will be able to preserve the, the spirit of the month. Does your organization uh, have a, uh, I wouldn't say like a count, or do we have an idea how many uh, Muslim Americans have been infected? Um, Of course, sadly, how many people have uh, passed away because of the coronavirus? And uh, and are you getting a spike in in cases, people reaching out to you uh, for needs, both... uh, you know, financial needs or they've lost their job or they've been discriminated against. Uh, like uh, some companies might have been using this as a an excuse uh, or a pretext to terminate uh, some uh, Muslim Americans who have been targeted. Yeah. You know, subhanAllah there, um, I still remember it was the weekend of March 13th. I was talking to some friends in the Muslim community's leadership and we were talking about what would happen uh, in terms of the burial process and rights of Muslims, mm. once they, they die of corona, right? So there's a, a whole process of washing the body, uh, people gather at the mosque for prayers. And we, you know, we were contemplating what that would look like. We were following those conversations online. And then, and, and that was before any Muslim had died in the United States of COVID. And now so many have died, right? We know Muslims um, who have died of COVID Muslim Muslims who, by the way, are also just dying alone because they are sick and dying for some other reason. Um, and, and they can't have their loved ones with them at the hospitals. And then, of course, you know, worth mentioning is that there are Muslims on the front lines, right? Is that there are mm-hmm. Muslim doctors, nurses, grocery store workers, Uber and Lyft drivers, right? All of these people who haven't been able to stop their work because they are considered essential, either because they're providing medical services or they're helping us just function. Um, have also um, been been really deeply impacted. And so we don't have a number. We do know that it, it is a lot now, just as there are a lot generally that may be something that gets tracked afterwards. In terms of the types of cases that we are seeing, you know, certain types of cases have uh, shifted. So for example, school bullying is not happening on campus anymore. Uh, we worry that it's happening online, but of course, young people are very... Um, unlikely to report those things. And so we're starting some of those conversations. Um, We're also talking to employees about what uh, workplace discrimination looks like right now. Um, And then of course, we know that the FBI is always targeting our community, but travel, nobody's traveling. So there's very little travel discrimination right now. But the things that we're seeing that are new is Jamal, we've heard from some people who were in the United States visiting family and, you know, they need to leave the United States because they have these limited visitor visas with like expiration dates and they've already been here too long. Right. But their home countries are closed. Mm. Right. So, for example, with India, you can't go back to India right now. If you are from India and your visa is going to expire, you have to file for a visa extension. And so we've been helping people with some of those questions. We, uh, of course, have heard from people who've gotten stuck in other countries. Um, and so we're, we're helping some of those people get back where possible. And then the other thing that I'm really excited to share with your listeners, sad but exciting, is we don't provide, we don't provide financial assistance that's outside of our scope. So people don't call us for that. Our 
No, our scope is very focused, civil rights mm -hmm. and discrimination and, and immigration too. Mm -hmm. But we know that there has been an unprecedented need in our community for COVID assistance, right? So people who have questions about, do I have to pay rent? What do right. I do about rent if I lost my job? We also know that there are millions of people now who have lost their jobs and have never navigated the unemployment benefits process. Um, and then there's also people who haven't gotten their stimulus checks yet who mm. have questions about that. And so starting on Monday, April 27, um, inshallah, our, our legal team will be able to provide some general advice and counseling on those questions. We know that for a lot of people, there are resources out there, but maybe they don't know them. That's not their community organization. And so we want to make sure that people know that they can come to care now if they mm -hmm. don't know how to apply for unemployment, but you know, they, they need that money or their rent is coming due and they need, um, they need to know if there's an eviction moratorium in their region. Right. Yeah. This is actually all good points because a lot of people that we've been speaking to, they have issues about how, how, how can I pay my rent or my mortgage payment and, and things like this. And so have you seen, uh, like the Muslim community coming together, especially now, as uh, we've, talked earlier the month of Ramadan is a is a month of praying but it's also a month of giving and and so do you think that um, the mosques will be kind of reaching out to the community to help those who are in in deep now more than ever we've seen some really great initiatives Jamal um, you know for example the Yassin foundation on the peninsula um, is saying since we won't be serving iftar every day, um, if you don't have food and you need food support, like we we will support you via food. I believe they also have cash grant assistance. Um, I know that Rahima Foundation in San Jose, for example, always does uh, a monthly food drive. And so we've seen efforts like that where mosques um, and then, of course, Muslim organizations like uh, Islamic Circle of North America and others are saying, if you have lost your job, like we can, we can give you food and or we can give you money. And so what I'm personally urging people to do is this is the year where if I haven't lost my job, I need to give more money than I used to. Right. And as Muslims, we, we talk often about um, Allah does not make us poorer because we gave charity. Charity, in fact, multiplies our wealth. So well, that's really easy to say when everyone has job security. Right. Yes. Like we know what the economy is like. It's harder to say and really actualize when we're struggling. And so I'm saying to my friends, our donors and others, one, you need to give to COVID relief and you need to make sure, by the way, that your organizations who are doing civic engagement, who are doing advocacy, who are doing legal services, right? And your mosques, right? Mm -hmm. are, are getting your support now more than ever before. So if you didn't lose your job and you would ordinarily give $5,000, this is the year to give $6,000. If you gave $50, this is the year to give 75. But I, I really want us to, you know, give in a way that, tests our faith in Allah. And do you have info, you have this information on your website? I mean, are you directing people where, you know, to to donate and? Yeah, absolutely. So um, both our, of course, our Ramadan campaign, but, you know, I think maybe more relevant to this conversation is we've consolidated resources on COVID in right. uh, on our website. And so if they go to the CARE San Francisco website, they can learn about um, unemployment. They can learn about, you know, even which cities have started to require face masks. And That's so we right. are consolidating all of that. We're also, of course, putting on our website uh, how people can donate to um, our partner organizations' COVID relief efforts. So uh, on Saturday, I don't know if you saw this, Donald Trump promoted a tweet from a conservative author who was just 
asking questions like, you know, would mosques be subjected to the same social distancing restrictions during Ramadan as churches were during Easter? You know, it's it, it's, a, it's a sort of a weird premise, you know, is the idea that uh, Muslim places of worship are typically treated more generously uh, from local governments and law enforcement when we know it's the opposite, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm just going to quote here. So at the press conference on Saturday evening, a reporter read the tweet back to uh, President Trump. And then this is what he said. He had to say, I would like to see that as in he too was wondering if local authorities would treat mosques differently than churches. What's your take on this? So absurd. I mean, well, we've been in this pandemic for for over, like, what, six weeks now. Um, we have known, the government has known about the virus for so long. And the federal government is not doing its job. And the reason it's not doing its job is because we have an incompetent fascist at the helm. But that is what it is, is that for over 20 years, not just 20 years, for over 20 years, mosques um, have, of course, been treated differently. Not of course, have we know been treated differently by law enforcement authorities, as have other gathering places of communities of color uh, and, and immigrant communities. And so the idea that mosques would get a free pass uh, to break shelter in place regulations and would be treated more generously than churches is absurd. And by the way, there were churches across the country that were open against the law for Easter services, right? And we, of course, have seen law enforcement regulate those activities because the First Amendment has its limits too. We can't put other people and our communities in danger. So the idea that, one, that churches were all in compliance is absurd, but two, that mosques have ever been treated better than churches in this country is baffling to me. Beyond that, I, I would say that what I've seen in the Muslim community, you know, in case anyone is doubting, is incredible concern for, for life and community. People are saying, we not only do we have a legal obligation to close, we have a moral and religious obligation to close because, Jamal, it's not about Zahra went to the mosque and got sick. If Zahra went to the mosque and got sick and was asymptomatic and gave it to her grandmother and her neighbor and the grocery store checkout person and so many other people, right? And I don't know any Muslims who um, would think that that was okay or that their, um, you know, that their voluntary congregational prayers uh, would supersede the value of human life. And and one thing we should we should add that Muslims believe in science. Many of them are doctors and in the health field and chemists and and so forth. I thought that this was weird. I was like, I had to I had to ask you this question because. Uh, probably, I don't know, like if President Trump uh, has been running out of uh, excuses and uh, he can't talk about the travel ban now because the whole country is shut down. So somehow to bring the Muslims back into that fear circle and which which is an incitement, really. And we've seen that, right? We've seen that from this president is that time and again, he wants to blame other people for his inadequacies. Um you know, and, and Jamal, I think the other thing worth naming, of course, for for our um, for our friends in our community and for our allies is, of course, also just the unprecedented level of anti-Asian violence and, and rhetoric that we've seen right now. Right. So in addition to targeting our community, um, this has been really interesting, I think, for a lot of Arabs and Muslims to say they're still hating us. They are still spreading uh, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim language. 
But the primary target of the Trump administration's fascism and bigotry and xenophobia right now has been the Chinese American community, right? Is that over and over again, he's called it a Chinese virus, which makes no sense. Um, we've seen calls for loyalty tests and extra responsibility for Chinese Americans, which also makes no sense, right? We've seen, um, and then on top of that, of course, we've seen like, I think the last numbers I saw were over 1,500 reported anti-Asian hate incidents, crimes, and, and harassment. And that's just what's reported, right? We know mm -hmm. from our own community's experience that so many people don't come forward because they don't want to make it worse or they don't want to get in trouble. And so that is, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. That, that is what this president does to mask his, his inadequacy. And you're absolutely right, because I've heard it actually uh, from uh, friends of mine, uh, Japanese-American friend of mine, comparing it to what happened uh, post 9-11, trying to paint an entire community, you know, and label them. And, and, and we, we should say that, uh, for example, Japanese-Americans and, of course, other members of the Asian-American communities were first to stand up with uh, their... Um, brothers and sisters in the Muslim American community during these times. I think in many ways they showed us how to be grace. They taught, uh, you know, many of us who are younger, like I came of age in that, in that moment, they taught many people in my generation how to be graceful allies um, through this, right? They also taught us, or that experience taught us that it's not even just the, the primary community, sometimes it's, it's much broader, right? So I've heard, of course, that Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans, Korean Americans are being mistaken. For Chinese right. and, and also attacked, right? And so the primary language is anti-Chinese, but the attacks and the violence are, are anti-Asian. And we know from you know the Muslim community that Arab Christians get attacked, Sikh Americans get attacked because those who are so irrational that they would blame an ethnic group for a health pandemic um, are also, frankly, like so ignorant that they don't even know our communities. You've been listening to the voice of Zahra Billo, the executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. That's uh, CARE uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Go to their website to learn more. And I want to thank you, uh, Zahra, for being with us during these difficult times and uh, wish you and your, you and your loved ones uh, um, health in, in these days. And then, of course, uh, uh, wish you a, a, a happy Ramadan. Thank you so much to you as well, Jamal. Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak. Wow, that that's uh, that's that that's an impressive interview from Zahra Bilu, uh, Jamal. She's the executive director on the Council of America, uh, uh, American Islamic Relations here in the Bay Area, and you know as she as she pointed out. You know, the COVID epidemic, although it affects all of us, doesn't necessarily have to stop us from, you know, practicing faith and our rituals during Ramadan. That's right. And there is one interesting comment. Yes, I don't know if you saw that interview, but uh, uh, I mean, uh, Trump's interview uh, when he was asked a question in a, in a press, one of his uh, press conferences, uh, uh, he, he retweeted a tweet by this conservative uh, writer uh, saying that Muslims get a special privilege in a way, you know, uh, are they going to be observing uh, quarantine uh, just like Christians during uh, uh, Easter? And somehow, if you listen to the uh, answer by Trump, 
uh, and this is uh, what Zahra Abdullah was talking about, right. as if uh, Muslims have any kind of a privilege. I thought that was just in a crazy way to kind of insert that into the discussion. And then Trump starts veering off attacking AOC and Ilhan Omar and saying that they hate Israel just out of the blue. This, this came up in the conversation. Well, you know, this is part of if you, you know, this is why Zahra's comments were so important, Jamal. If you watch, unfortunately, like you and I do, the, the, the White House briefings on COVID every day, they are so unbearably painful because they are not there for Donald Trump to present data, facts, and uh, console uh, Americans for the devastation that they're going through. He's using these press briefings on the COVID pandemic, Jamal, as campaign rallies. He's using it as an opportunity, as he did just yesterday, to stop all immigration. I mean, that's been his his dream since he became president, is to figure out a way to stop all immigration. Well, he signed the immigration order yesterday, Jamal, by executive order, saying no more immigrants for 60 days. He continues to spew this hateful, Islamophobic, uh, you know, rhetoric again, which makes no sense how you know, the COVID epidemic and uh, Ramadan are in any way connected to, you know, the, to, to whatever he thinks is going on uh, with Israel. It's, it's crazy. These briefings, Jamal, are crazy. And um, what they're going to do, unfortunately, is create, I mean, and by the way, we, we should let our listeners know that if you look at the countries that are predominantly Muslim uh, populated, they have been extraordinary about observing the shelter in place. You know that picture of the of uh, the you know the the grand the Kaaba in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, completely empty, Jamal, for for you know weeks and going on a month now. People and the same in Jerusalem. Things Muslims have been for the most part, honoring the shelter-in-place and quarantine all over the world. But it's not going to stop them from being able, in some way, to practice their faith and to come together during this uh, the holiest of months. So, so, the, so different countries in the Arab world uh, have been faring uh, differently. You know, uh, as uh, last week we had a conversation with a uh, journalist right. could tap and could tap and he uh, gave us a very clear update about the situation in Palestine especially under the occupation and then also about uh, Amman Jordan uh, which they seem to have um, you know to have things under control at least for the time being so we also had uh, you know we're we're committed to speaking to as many of our colleagues on the ground uh, to provide us with these updates so uh, this week, we also spoke, spoke to uh, Dina Masri, and, and Dina Masri is a Lebanese political activist and a university uh, professor. She's also an environmental scientist. Right. And uh, she gave us a totally different picture about what's going on in Lebanon, as especially we've talked on this show many times about the demonstrations, about the basically a collapsed government in, in Lebanon. And, and, and somehow uh, now there is a trend of kind of deviating the attention from the 
troubles of the government and focus it on the coronavirus, but uh, uh, they're not really doing much according uh, to, to Dina Masri about it. And of course, there is the major problem also in Lebanon, a million Syrian refugees right. and about a half a million Palestinian refugees. Let's, let's uh, listen to the, her interview. Joining us from Beirut, Lebanon, Dr. Rania Masri. She's a university professor, but also she's a political activist elected to a, a Lebanese party, Muatunun wa Muatunat fi Dawla, which translates to citizens in a state. And she's also an env environmental scientist. Uh, so welcome to Arab Talk, Rania. Hope that you and your loved ones are staying healthy during these uh, very difficult times. Yes, thank you. And I hope you all are well as well. California is also going through its difficulties. Absolutely. So Lebanon with a population, I think, approximately of six million. Some reports says five, five and a half, six million. But has relatively uh, a small number of COVID-19 cases. Last I've checked, there are 682 cases with 22 deaths. Now, this is much lower than several countries. Uh, for example, Norway has more than 7,000 uh, cases with 182 deaths. Uh, uh, first, I don't know, are these numbers accurate? Uh, is the government doing a, you know, and, and I don't expect like a proper answer, but just more of a how, how the population feels about it. Uh, are people practicing, you know, social distancing or is uh, the government doing something right to keep these numbers low? <laughs> well, thank you for these questions. I mean, if we really want to compare the numbers to Norway, we need to compare the, the testing. What is the percentage of the population in Norway that's gone tested? What's the percentage of the population in Lebanon that's gone tested? Here, the percentage that's gotten tested is less than 2%, 0.17% to be exact. That's mm -hmm. our population that's been tested, citizens and residents. So let, let's take that into perspective. So perhaps if we had higher testing, we would have had higher cases. As to how the government's been dealing with it, the government's been dealing with it in a similar manner to how they deal with everything else. They put the responsibility on the citizens and the residents rather than them carrying the responsibility on their own shoulders. So basically what the government has done is since mid-March, the institutions have been closed. We have a somewhat of a curfew. We have no schools, everything is closed, okay? And they're putting all the responsibility on our shoulders. So we stay home and we'll be okay. And that's what the government is doing. But wait a second, do, do we all have the financial luxury to just stay home and expect that we can still pay rent? that we can still be able to purchase food, that we can still cover our bills, that we can still take care of our loved ones. Is this the economic situation we have in Lebanon where yeah, we just stay home, practice social distancing, behave like the top 1% and everything will be fine. This isn't our economic situation in Lebanon, nor is this the status of our healthcare, yet that is what our government has done. To such an extent that our Minister of Interior actually said Yes, I acknowledge, you know, some people have difficulty, but I'm quoting here, he actually said, just eat an olive. Mm. So as if minimalizing the extent of the poverty and the economic strain and the difficulty that more than half of the population in Lebanon is undergoing, more than half of the population in Lebanon is undergoing such economic strains, 
solely because we are trapped in our homes. Add on to that, that we literally are a country facing economic bankruptcy. We're not going through a recession. We're going mm -hmm. through a bankruptcy. COVID-19 could not have come at a worse time for us in Lebanon than hitting us during our bankruptcy struggle. So on top of everything else, now you have 50% of the workforce in Lebanon that are day laborers. Specifically, the number is 55% of our workforce in Lebanon are day laborers. These are individuals now that are prohibited from working. So the situation is not as black and white as we only have 682 cases. Well, you know, a few weeks, a few weeks ago, the entire world saw Lebanese uh, women, men, children, everyone uh, marching in the streets. Uh, and we know that uh, marching, uh, you know, have they have specific demands on the government and uh, there was a governmental change. Do you think now this crisis is going to be used to deflect from the government's woos and in a, well, in a way, uh, you know, like, oh, we're, we're in the same boat as everyone else. We need help. And so people start talking about the COVID-19 and they're, they're basically not uh, shining the spotlight on the government itself. Well, I mean, let me give you an example. So two days after curfew was imposed on us, just a mere two days, the government decided to remove the tents of the protesters in central Beirut. The tents did not pose any threat to COVID-19, to the contamination, to the spread of COVID-19, none at all. But it was a very blatant attempt by the government to attempt to erase the memory of the October uprising and of the October Intifada. They have failed, of course, because what they failed to realize is that there is a reason behind the protest. There is a reason behind the uprising. And that reason is still here. So mm -hmm. on one avenue, they've... they've pretended that everything is okay, but the parliament met yesterday and today. What did the parliament do? Did the parliament try in any way to ease the economic burden of more than half of the population in Lebanon that are financially struggling? No, actually, members of parliament left the parliament session. So many of them left the parliament session that there wasn't even a quorum in the parliament for them to even vote for mm. economic support for the poor and for the small businesses. Even though the economic support that they wanted to give the poor was measly. It was 400,000 lira a month. 400,000 lira a month today translates into approximately $130. Give it another week, it'll be approximately $50. This is a measly, pathetic amount of money. And yet they couldn't even take it upon themselves to sit in parliament long enough to have a quorum to be able to pass such small little economic support for the poor and for the small businesses in this country. So this, this speaks volumes about the government and it speaks volumes about the parliament, by the way, which is the same parliament that won the election in 2018 that is still here. It speaks volumes about the political elite in this country. So given that the political elite caused this economic bankruptcy, that the political elite have failed to even draw an economic vision out of this bankruptcy, yes, they most definitely are taking advantage of COVID-19 to make themselves look better by showing to the world, look, we've mm -hmm. managed to impose a curfew.
So uh, how are people coping? I mean, uh, what you're telling me, basically, they're left alone, really abandoned by the government. I mean, they've been suffering for months. They were, were unable to draw money from, from the banks. Their, the, 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 the value of the Lebanese lira has been uh, devalued. And, and now, you know, uh, nothing has been done to help them. So how have they been surviving, really, with very little? Well, what's happened is you have a few of these sectarian political parties that have now attempted to rebuild the, the clientele relationship between them and the Lebanese. So rather than have the government, the parliament, reclaim its role to provide the rights for the citizenry, because we're demanding our rights, we're not demanding charity, we have sectarian political parties in the country that are trying to do that work themselves and thereby claiming patronage. So you have several political parties that have distributed thermometers, that have distributed soap, and that are actually trying to come up with their own healthcare plans. But there can be no political party that can be greater than the state. What we need to be doing is building a state and not increasing sectarian uh, clientelism relationships between individuals and these sectarian political parties. So yes, how are people coping? People are not coping. This is what's happening. And we're going to be facing even more economic difficulties in the future. We've seen already in certain parts of Lebanon that people have been protesting and going to the streets and demanding economic support, demanding economic equity, demanding some kind of rights. And we also need to remember that we do not have universal health care privileges in Lebanon. So for those who are rich and they get sick, whether it be with COVID-19 or with something else, they can find access to the private hospitals. But for the rest of us, 45% of the Lebanese do not have health care insurance. So where can we go? Our public hospitals are already filled to capacity with COVID-19 patients. Where can we go? So we have extreme difficulties. And yes, tomorrow is slated to be much more difficult than today already is. And it's slated to continue to be so much more difficult so long as we have these levels of political elite in control. Right. So now there is concern, concern that Lebanon will treat its refugees, that it basically won't treat its refugees like its own citizens, uh, which is not much to say about the, the country yeah. hosts close to uh, one million Syrian refugees. And of course, you have um, uh, about half a, half a million or, or so of Palestinian refugees in the country. The Lebanese health minister, Hamad Hassan, said that the refugees will be treated exactly like their Lebanese counterparts. Uh, but, but we, we know, know that... that yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite accurate, even that. I mean, today we had the first report of a Palestinian refugee in one of yes. the Palestinian refugee camps. We don't know which camp, but there is one Palestinian Syrian refugee who has been uh, infected with COVID-19. And given the congestion, it, it's impossible to ask somebody in, in who lives in a... Who, who has low economic uh, rights, it's impossible to ask these individuals that live in very congested houses, houses that there are more than two people per room, how can they practice social distancing? How can that even be possible? How can they practice isolation? So even to ask for the poor to practice isolation and social distancing is, is unreal. It's, it's unrealistic. And yet that's half our population. And when I say our population, I'm including within that our non-Lebanese residents 
that include the refugees, that include the hundreds and thousands of domestic workers in this country, that if you do not have documentation, you will not be afforded any testing, be it at the public hospital or otherwise. So we have layers and layers of communities that are all in need in this country. At the very basic, let me, let me just make you, you know, make it apparent how problematic our political system is. At the very simplest, what the government needs to be doing is conduct a census. We haven't had a census in this country since the 1930s. Wow. We don't know officially who lives where and what the economic status of these individuals are and what their education is. The United States right now is conducting a census. Every few years or so, the U.S. conducts a census of its residents and its citizenry. In Lebanon, we do not have an official census. So we don't know. And when you have political policies being built on a lack of knowledge, you end up with, at best, ignorant political policies. Then what do you say when you have a government that's not even building political policies and that is simply appeasing us by telling us to go have an olive and to sit in our homes? Right. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, the picture that you are painting is really very gloom and, and hopefully you don't have the spread like what happened in Italy, for example, I mean, or what's going on in the United States, because if, if this is the situation there and if you have anywhere near this, the whole system will collapse. But what is the system that we're talking about that could collapse? I'm not worried about the spread of COVID-19 impacting us like it has impacted folks in Italy and folks in Spain. That's not my concern. But when we say about the system will collapse, what is the system? We are facing economic bankruptcy. The Lebanese lira several months ago was 1,500 lira to the dollar. Today, it's 3,200 to the dollar. And it's expected to reach 5,000 to the dollar in just a few months. We no longer have access to our funds in the banks because we, they don't exist. The deposits no longer exist. We are a country that is bankrupt. We are a country that for decades has been importing 86% of its needs. We have an 86% trade deficit. We import $18 billion worth of goods and we export $3 billion worth of goods. This is completely unsustainable. It was natural that we'd reach this economic bankruptcy because we haven't had a political vision to develop an economy that is not based on money laundering and protecting the, the private banks. So when we speak about a system breaking, our system has broken. Our system has broken. However, there are political alternatives. There is a way forward. It's not as if we are a company that is seeking liquidation. Not in the least. We are a people that are demanding that we actually have a civil state, not a sectarian representation of individuals in which we would be held hostage to the whims of the six and seven sectarian leaders in this country. No, what we need and what we can do is from this very, very difficult juncture that we're living now between COVID-19, between the economic bankruptcy, between everything else that we're suffering from, from the, these difficulties, this is how we need to build our civil state and how we build our way forward. Our country is not lost, not yet. Well, how do you break away from this sectarian uh, uh, rule that you've had for decades now? I mean, I mean, what you're saying is, yeah, uh, I mean, citizens in a state. So you're basically talking about, uh, you know, one, you know, one vote, right? 
Well, we're talking about a civil state, not a sectarian sharing system, which well, is what we have now, where it is the sect into which you were born that determines your position in every single public office and determines your political representation. It is a system that is designed to be incompetent and designed to be inefficient and designed to be destructive. And it's a system that has reached us to the situation that we're in now. How do we do that? Well, these political leaders have never been weaker than they are today because of the economic bankruptcy. And from this weakness is the need for us to develop a very strong political alternative. We are here as one political party. There are other political parties that are also demanding a political change. People in this country have had more than enough. You know, we've been protesting in the streets for a long time and we've been clarifying our political discourse. And we firmly believe that our country is not for sale. We refuse to liquidate the state assets in order to recoup this bankruptcy issue. This is not how we save our, our country, nor is this how we analyze the COVID-19 issue. We do both by understanding what is actually happening on the ground and planning a way forward. And that is through a political vision and an economic vision. So there is an alternative. Well, uh, thank you for uh, clarifying this. And I really want to thank you for your time, for joining us on Arab Talk Radio on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And stay healthy. And hopefully we will talk to you soon in better times. Thank you, definitely. And all the best to you in California and everywhere else. I, I think uh, uh, Professor Masri's uh, analysis of what's happening in Lebanon, Jamal, is very insightful. It it actually makes me very concerned and very worried. A couple of things from the political side is that uh, politicians are using the COVID epidemic and pandemic as a way not to deal with you know real issues that are going on in in their respective countries. And Lebanon, obviously, based on what uh, you know, she said. You know, all of the problems having to do with economics, with refugees, both Syrian and Palestinian, you know, political um, distrust among the... Po it's not like those things have gone away. And then, but using the COVID epidemic as a way of, uh, I mean, you know, uh, perhaps like even Donald Trump and a lot of other politicians are doing, Jamal, using it as a distraction technique. That's right. And and so I also want... want us before we end the show, just uh, uh, have you provide us of uh, more of your insights. I mean, we spoke about uh, what Donald Trump has been trying to do, but also some of the reports might not be encouraging. I mean, in, in a way, it is encouraging to see people um, are sheltering in place. But then I saw a report that now California's number, after we thought that they were under control, they've been spiking and then there is also talk about that this uh, virus might come back with the vengeance in the fall along with the flu you know like that combination can you imagine trying to deal with the flu season and then COVID-19 well, in the fall well, are we going to be ready for that I can be very clear about that Jamal we're not going to be ready for that and um, the lack of a federal national policy still, something that we've been talking about on Arab Talk for weeks now, that the piece that's miss missing from this is a lack of a national, federal, organized effort so nationally through for every state we can all be on the same page. The 
I want to talk about some good news and some bad news. The, the, the good news, which is not that good, but it is news, is that in some areas like New York and some of the hard-hit areas here in Northern California, we are seeing a little bit of a flattening of the curve. However, having said that, if you listen to Andrew Cuomo today and yesterday, yes, the curve is flattening, but you're still having 400 to 500 New Yorkers die every single day, and you still have emergency rooms and ICUs that are filled to capacity, and and people are dying at alarming rates. Um. You're very right about the California situation, Jamal. Although here in Northern California, where the situation may be stabilizing, down in LA and uh, in Southern California, the situation, because they're about two or three weeks behind, maybe three weeks behind us here in Northern California, Los Angeles County, Orange County, uh, folks in the in the in in those in you know uh areas in and around Los Angeles are headed for a world of hurt Jamal which means that the situation in California is likely going to get much worse especially in southern California before it gets better i think when you put all of these things together you put together the fact that there's probably going to be a second wave you put together with anxiety that people have about working and then maybe putting themselves in dangerous situations and re-exposing everybody. Then, as you rightly point out, with the flu season in the fall and the second wave of uh, inflection from the COVID-19 all happening at the same time, I'm afraid, Jamal, that we're headed as a country, if not the world, for an extremely painful and potentially even more catastrophic fall and winter than what we're experiencing right now. The the devastation, if the flu and the COVID uh, virus intersect together around flu season, uh, because there's not going to be the vaccine for the, for the COVID virus is not going to be ready by the fall. We're going to be headed for potentially catastrophic consequences. And uh, I, for one, am very concerned. When I hear people talk about going back to work, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I really, or a couple of months even, I feel that's really delusional. That's really not paying attention to the science and to the understanding of what's happening right now. So I want our listeners to understand, we continue to talk about this, Jamal, because we understand that our listeners, you know, are do believe in science, do want to hear the data, do want to get information that is current so that they can take the information and do what's best for themselves and their families. That's all we want. We have never minimized the devastating economic consequences of this virus on people and communities, but there is a bigger devastation and a bigger world of hurt that we're headed for if we don't continue to shelter in place, if we don't continue to cover ourselves, if we don't continue to quarantine, we're headed for a situation that could be even more devastating than what we have right now. Well, we're in it uh, for the long run. This is what it seems. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Support KPOO. You could also watch us on my Facebook page, Jamal Dajani 2, on Facebook and also on our website. We have all the archived uh, shows on our website, ArabTalkRadio.com. We will talk to you next week, same time, same place. Ramadan Karim, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.